Welcome to the Global Development Review Podcast. I'm Jafar. Today the guest of my podcast episode is Ramani Kunan Yagam. Ramani Kunan Yagam is the present chair of World Bank Inspection Panel. She brings to the panel three decades of experience across diverse political and multicultural environments in the private and public sector. Ramani spent more than decade doing field work in remote parts of Indonesia. She has held leadership position in sustainability in both the private sector and the non-profit sector. Most recently before joining the panel, she was the global head for social performance and human rights for BG groups. Ramani has been a member of the board of two institutional and international non-profit development organizations Resolve and the Institute of Human Rights and Business. Ramani has strong operational experience working across the entire project cycle. Her experience with multinational and international organization and valuable experience living and working in more than 30 countries make evident her people skills and ability to broker trust relationship. Her appointment as a secondary to the World Bank very early in her career also gives her insight into and knowledge of the organization's operations that complement the expertise she has developed working alongside civil society multilaterals bilaterals and communities affected by the world bank projects in this episode of global development review podcast i discuss with ramani about the accountability mechanism of the world bank funded projects how and why the inspection panel was established what is the mandate of inspection panel and how do we reflect about the working of inspection panel and world bank funded projects the inspection panel has recently completed 30 years we also reflect about the learnings and and the work of the inspection panel over the last 3 decades and what are the gaps in it ramani also shares her insight about the way forward to engage with the communities and to contribute in the accountability of the world bank projects i heartily welcome ramani to the global development review podcast and i hope you enjoy this conversation Ramanai thank you so much uh, for um, being on my show it's really a pleasure to have you here and uh, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion uh, thanks a lot for being here and uh, giving your time for this podcast show i will just uh, go directly to my first question about the inspection panel and before discussing like how inspection panel work i really would like to understand the context and the reason behind the birth of uh, inspection panel what is actually the inspection panel what are its purpose and goal can you please share something about it here? 
So thank you so much, Jaffa, for inviting me to be part of your podcast. So the inspection panel has a, a very interesting history, but it also is a historical landmark in terms of institutions in the uh, in the context of the evolving of development and the development agenda. So the, the, the panel was the first independent accountability mechanism for multilateral development banks that was set up. And following the, the uh, establishment of the inspection panel, we now have over 22 or 25 uh, independent accountability mechanisms in, in almost all, or in fact, in all the multilateral development banks, but also in some of the bilateral agencies. And we now even see this, uh, this uh, migrating to non-government entities. For example, World Wildlife Fund also has set up an independent accountability mechanism in the last two years. So the panel had a very big influence and it was a landmark uh, the establishment of the panel was a landmark uh, initiative um, in, in terms of development. The history of the setting up the inspection panel, the inspection panel was set up in 1993. So we celebrate 30 years this year. And it came out of two movements, one grassroots and one a bigger movement that was happening at the macro global level. The grassroots movement came with in relation to the Narmada Dam in India, which the World Bank was financing. And the Narmada Dam in India was inadvertently causing a huge uh, social and environmental um, consequences and impact. And there was a huge movement that started very much at the grassroots level and then grew right up to the national level and then, you know, um, had international flavor and caught up, uh, you know, was taken up by the international um, environmental movement. Uh, and it was a huge campaign against the World Bank that the World Bank was financing these massive infrastructure projects. You know, the bank itself was set up initially as a uh, rehabilitation bank, reconstruction and rehabilitation bank after the Second World War. And But these, these projects were being developed with very little uh, attention or awareness on what was happening in terms of their environmental and social impacts of massive resettlement involving you know large numbers of villagers, cultural property, all of that stuff. Similarly, in uh, in uh, at the global level, you had the the the, the Rio summit, right? The first Earth summit, and in the Rio summit summit too, there there were calls for citizen-driven engagement. You know, impacted communities having a much bigger say and participation in in the projects that affected their lives, and the requirement for consultation. For, for involvement. And these two movements almost came together and of course they converged into a huge campaign against the World Bank and the World Bank president at that time commissioned what was called the Moors Commission that was led uh, to look at what was happening at Namada and, and you know that that commissioner was uh, the report was very damning to the World Bank and that led to the creation of the inspection panel as an independent accountability mechanism. And it serves two purposes. It means 
first and foremost, it's an access to justice mechanism. So where affected communities anywhere in the world, if they believe they are affected or may be affected by, have the potential to be affected by a World Bank finance project, they can raise a complaint to the inspection panel. The criteria is two or more. So it's a very low criteria in terms of who are affected. Of course, there's other criteria as well, but we can talk about that later. And, and when they bring a complaint to the inspection panel, then we have a procedure in which we look at the complaints. But the most important thing is what the panel serves as an access to justice mechanism is the voices of those most impacted and least heard are now brought to the highest levels of decision making in the bank, which is the World Bank Board. And the panel serves that purpose. The second purpose and objective of the inspection panel was to hold the World Bank accountable to its own policies and standards. So the World Bank had environmental and social standards and policies, but there was a, there is no other entity that actually holds the bank accountable. So that, that purpose, the panel serves that. That's the second objective of the panel. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this uh, insight. So, uh, if I just ask how this inspection panel actually engages with World Bank funding uh, projects, uh, that seems to have negative impacts on communities and environment. And what is the procedure of selection of cases uh, for inspections and accountability for the World Bank? If you please share some insights about it. Yes, so we we are a demand-driven entity, which means that we cannot initiate an investigation on any World Bank project. So we have to wait for a, a request to come to us or a complaint to come to us, and then we have a, a process by which we look at it. So the panel is governed by the inspection panel resolution. That's the legal framework that governs the panel, and that, that resolution is owned by the board. So it's the board that gives the panel its imprimatur to operate, and it's the board that also grants the panel the independence to do its work independently. I think there's a really important hallmark. The panel does its work independently. So we are independent of World Bank management and operations. We panel members are appointed by the board of the World Bank, and we report to the world of, board of the World Bank. The criteria for admission is six. So the complaint has to come from two or more affected persons from the project area, or they can be represented by a, a civil society organization, provided that the organization has the uh, this, the, uh, the, the uh, affected communities have granted that organization the power to, to represent them. The, the project has to be linked to a World Bank finance project. So people cannot just bring up an issue and say they have an impact, but if that impact has to be linked to a World Bank finance project. The, the complaint cannot be um, about procurement or contracting or corruption. These are undertaken by another independent mechanism in the World Bank, which is the integrity unit. The uh, the complainant cannot bring complaints that have already been heard by the inspection panel. So what it means is they cannot bring the same request twice unless they have new evidence or new circumstances that would potentially change the way the panel analyzes the case. And the World Bank 
should have had prior knowledge of this issue. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, the bank has its own grievance mechanisms, right? It has a, all bank projects have to have a grievance mechanism, project level grievance me mechanism, and at the corporate level, the bank has a grievance redress service. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to have used those services, but in some way or form, the World Bank needed to have prior knowledge of this issue so that there was sufficient time for the, there was the bank had the opportunity to address it, and if the people are not satisfied, they can come to the panel. So these are the criteria for admission. Um, once we admit a project, we register it, and then we issue a notice of registration to the board, and we publish it on our website. I, I want to add here, the panel's work is completely transparent. All our reports are published on our website in real time. So people can read our reports, and they can be the judge of our, our work. Once we register a case, we go into what we call an eligibility phase. So that eligibility phase means that we look at all the information that has been provided to us to make a decision about whether we are going to recommend an investigation or not. And these are time bound during the once we register a case with management has 21 working days to prepare their response to the issues that were raised in the complaint. And then the panel in that time will read all the documents associated, of course, look at the request for inspection and any documents that the requesters have sent to us. We read the management response and we do a field visit where we talk to all the relevant stakeholders, obviously the complainants, but also the wider community to understand better the context, what, you know, whether this is just a kind of one household issue or is this something that has broader community ramifications. We speak to the government, who's the borrower, the lead implementing agency. Of course, we speak to the bank. Uh, any civil society organizations, academia, and then based on that, we look to see is there prima facie evidence or prima facie reason for us to recommend an investigation. And if that is the case, we recommend an investigation. And if not, we would say there has been insufficient evidence or there is no link to the existing bank project or these issues have already been resolved, so they are no longer live, and we close the case. And then once we recommend an investigation, we commence an investigation. We do have now an interim step because now when we recommend an investigation in the last two years, there is a dispute resolution service. And then we hold our investigation in abeyance. The case moves to dispute resolution where the option of dispute resolution is offered to both the, uh, the complainants and the borrower. And it's voluntary. It's up to them if they want to take up the offer or not. But if one or both parties refuse, then the investigation commences. Previously, the investigation commenced straight away. Yeah. Okay. So uh, once the investigation commences, and uh, then how uh, the inspection panel starts? Like, I would like to understand what is the methodology. It's like uh, you have your team of experts in different regions. Are you you have researchers, activists? Uh, who are the people who do this uh, kind of inspection and uh, and how how they um, you know bring up reports from the ground and yeah if you please elaborate about it thank you jaffa uh, so the panel is the inspection panel are three members right uh, and we in a way the expertise we are from three different nationalities um, and we represent the three different subject areas of sub, uh, subject matter expertise that is typical of a panel case. So we always have a legal expert, 
So currently we have a panel member, Ibrahim Pam, who's our legal expert. He's a lawyer, criminal lawyer. He's, you know, worked extensively um, in, in, in high conflict areas. Uh, we have an environmental engineer or an environmental expert, and that is Mark Goldsmith. Uh, and then we have a social expert, and that's myself, and I'm an anthropologist. So the three panel members themselves bring these three different dimensions of expertise. And we come from three different nationalities, and of course, panel members are selected on their global experience. And then the panel members are supported by uh, a secretariat, so a team of staff. Uh, it's not huge. I think we have around eight or nine staff. But the staff also, are, it's a mixture of senior and more junior staff, and they also bring the different, the range of expertise. So we have a lawyers or people with a legal background, we have people with a social background, people with an environmental background, occupational health and safety. These are the expertise in the staff. So when we, when, when we have a case, we form a sub-team, and that's always led by one panel member, and that panel member is selected on the basis of the the, the core subject matter expertise that is needed for that case. So, for example, if there's a case on resettlement, I would lead it. Or if there's a case that deals with like environment or biodiversity, Mark would lead it. And then we would put a team together that has that sort of similar expertise, but, you know, balance. And we make sure the team, there is a gender balance and also there is a regional balance. So let's say if we have a case in West Africa, we will make sure the team has French speakers, or if we have a case in Latin America, we will make sure that the team has, you know, Spanish speakers. Uh, likewise, in India, we will make sure we have a Hindi speaker on our on our team. So we have, a, I mean, even though we are not a big uh, team in the panel, we have something like eleven panel. Uh, I mean, with panel members and staff, we are probably around eleven. We speak something like over thirty languages between us. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, I was just wondering uh, when you were sharing that how this panel works. So, do you also engage with the communities um, and and their leaders to become part of your inspection or the process? Yeah. So no, then the community leaders or community members are not part of the inspection process. But what we do is when we start an investigation, the first thing we do is we write what we call an investigation plan. The investigation plan sets out the scope of the investigation. So what are the issues that we're going to cover based on the complaint and then what we considered eligible when we wrote our eligibility report. It, it very specifically states the scope, the expertise that's needed, the timeline, and we publish that on our website, right? Once we do that, when we do it, now we set up a team, I already described how the panel team would be set up. We then source leading international experts to work with us on the case. So for example, and we don't go with, firms or companies. We look at individuals who are leading experts. So for example, if we have a big a case on resettlement, we don't just look for a leading resettlement expert. We look at the region of the world that person is an expert on. So if you have a resettlement in, let's say, Central Asia, we will look for an expert who had expertise working in Central Asian countries, Georgia or Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan. I'm just giving examples. Or if we need an expert on say flood protection and uh, you, you, you know hydrology, let's say, and if we have that case in Brazil, we will go for a leading expert in Brazil 
on that case. So we, we put together a team of leading experts and panel members. But then what we do is we consult with everybody. So we would do, we interview all the bank staff, past and present, who have had involvement. They are one-to-one interviews. They are confidential. We do not attribute or code anything. So we would interview in an investigation, an average of 40 to 60 bank staff. We, of course, we interview the complainants and the wider community. We go to the field and we spend a long time on the field. Like, so we would have very long community meetings and then we would break up into focus groups. We would have one-to-one meetings because we also try to triangulate what we hear, right? So we need to look at corroboration. We need to look at patterns. So we look at all of that, or we need to look at are there singularities of these issues? So we would have extensive meetings in the in the community, and we we do that independently. Then we meet with the government, and we have a lot of meetings with the government. We meet with the implementing agency. They will often take us and do a field visit with us as well. So we see it from both the implementing agency as well as the community perspective. The same issue we look at from different lenses. And our job is to then triangulate that information, look at all the facts, because it's our work is fact-finding, and try and establish what the correct facts are in this case. And we review, you will not believe this, Jaffa, we review literally thousands of documents. So we review all the documents on the case, all the documents the bank has published, the, you know, the, the project appraisal document, the environmental impact assessment, the environmental management plan, social assessments, resettlement plans, water resource management plans. You know, if it says indigenous, indigenous people's plans, we look at all the bank aid memoirs, we look at their project updates, we look at, you know, I mean, literally thousands of documents uh, in order to, and then we try to then pull, you know, it's like a jigsaw, we try to piece all this information together because we everything we do, we have to evidence and substantiate. And then we produce our investigation report. So normally from the time we publish our investigation plan, so the time we start the investigation to submit the report to the board, it's six months. So we commit to that time frame. And we are considered one of the quickest mechanisms in terms of investigation. Other mechanisms take two years, five years, seven years. We do six months because we believe strongly justice uh, justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this insight. And uh, also, I, I can see, I'm also an anthropologist, so I can see the relevance of, you know, anthropological work in, in the inspection uh, panel. Uh, I'm also, like, wondering, like, if, if, if it's possible to share, uh, like, one of the experiences uh, about any any cases that, uh, that has been done under your chairmanship and uh, where... Where it has recommended the policies of World Bank and how actually are the overall policy of World Bank development fund funds uh, funding projects. So how uh, I, I'm just wondering how um, to an example like how it actually works uh, to influence the World Bank policy with regards to this project. Yes, let me give you uh, examples. I'm just going to put it up. Um, so. We have several. I think one I would like to talk about, and this is this was considered a landmark case in the World Bank, and this was a, a road transportation project in in uh, in in Uganda, uh, and the allegations were there were several, but they also included sexual exploitation and harassment 
of of of, uh, of women, including uh, young girls or girl, um, yeah, girls below the age of 18. So it was a very serious case. In fact, we had two cases that were similar. The other one was in the Democratic Republic of Co Congo, and in in both these cases. Uh, you know, when when the when the request came for the panel, the panel did the eligibility report. It it sort of scoped out the issues, recommended an investigation. It caused re reverberations across the bank, because you know, for the bank to have a case uh, uh, with uh, GBV allegations uh, was very very significant. Um, so what happened as a result of that? I think one of the things is the first thing the bank did was once the panel's eligibility report was published and was, was that it suspended its uh, financing to the transport sector uh, in Uganda so that it could do a whole portfolio review in order to fix any issues and, and address them. Following the publication of the panel's investigation report, the bank made several changes. Uh, and it, this, this was a landmark case in terms of changes in the bank. So the bank created a gender-based uh, violence task force in the World Bank uh, you know, in order to prevent and respond to gender-based violence in bank projects. Bank projects were asked to prepare then a screening to identify projects where GBV risks were high, high risk, in order then, and this would be evaluated by the GBV task force. The bank also prepared uh, a guidance note on project-induced labor in flux, because this was one of the big problems in a big in a transportation. You know, you know, during construction, you have this huge influx of labor, mostly men. All you know. They are without families and single, and then you have all the kind of recent problems that, 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 that come from that. The bank also made changes to its procurement policy. So it, um, uh, it, it, it basically came up where large works contractors in infrastructure have to sign a code of conduct that explicitly deals, uh, details the prohibition of and penalties for any sexual relations with minors. And the bank also became the first international institution to disqualify contractors for failing to comply with GBV obligations, right? And this is now replicated in other MDBs as well. And then the bank also did its own report on lessons learned and actions to address internal systemic issues and prepared several guidance notes on GBV. And then following this case, uh, all existing bank transportation projects were were assessed and retrofitted to meet with these new guidelines. So this is one of the big landmark cases, I think, that shows the changes from panel work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this and also um, brings this uh, question into my mind, like whether, whether um, you know, uh, we consider our, uh, the inspection panels, uh, reports, and uh, recommendations just as a tokenistic to the World Bank, or is it like more more influencing the policies and changing, uh, you know, the kind of uh, discourses within in the policies and uh, 
and examinations for the funding of the projects and all. So, I mean, what are your insights on it? So that's an interesting question because we can talk about where there's been a direct influence, yeah. right? And yeah. the example I gave you of the GBV is a direct influence of World Bank or of inspection panels investigation. And then there are the indirect influences. So I think the bank, everyone in the bank or the you know, bank management in general would agree that one of the biggest benefits for the bank from inspection panel cases, aside from, of course, the transparency and the bank being willing to be held accountable, is the lessons they learn from panel cases, right? And the systemic issues that can be identified through panel investigations and how that gets changed. So they would agree with that. Some of those changes are in direct response to a case and some of them are indirect. I would argue that, you know, the World Bank now has environmental and social standards and its environmental and social framework, which came into effect in, from 2018 that a lot of the new standards were influenced by panel cases. We can't show that directly, but when you look at the strengthening of, you know, the, the current indigenous people standard, uh, the current standards on involuntary resettlement, also the standards on community health, safety, security, the new standards on labor and working conditions, these all had influences. There were multiple. I'm not saying that we are the only source of influence, but the panel influence. But where the panel directly influenced, let me give you another case. Um, so, for example, in the Albania integrated coast, coastal zone management and cleanup project, where the panel did a big investigation, and you know it, the panel investigation really revealed a policy gap with regard with respect to the application of the World Bank policy on involuntary resettlement in the context of land management projects. And the bank, you know, acknowledging this lack of clarity in the application of the bank policy on involuntary resettlement in the context of land use planning projects, issued two guidance documents for staff. The first was to clarify the policy application regarding land use planning projects, and the second was interim guidance concerning the identification and management of risks intrinsic to land use planning projects. Uh, the other case was, you know, under my watch, um, which is the Uganda, uh, again in Uganda, it's another, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a different case from what I spoke about before. It's also a road project. It's a road rehabilitation project, the Northeast Asset uh, Road Management Project in the northeastern part of Uganda. And this uh, pertained to, the request came from a community or the, uh, with regard to how a subcontractor had acquired um, their uh, rock in that community for quarry, for essentially for, for quarrying stone and materials to be used for the road rehabilitation. And so there were, you know, the complaints were that they were, co the allegations were that they were coerced into signing a contract that they did not understand. The contract tied them to a 10 year contract, which was against their will, that their the buffer zone uh, that the crops and trees were basically uh, destroyed by the contractor without informing the community and without the application of the bank's involuntary resettlement policy and without consultation. The bank management in its response acknowledged that, you know, 
the 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 this uh, rock was acquired as a quarry quarry without the application of a proper environmental and social impact assessment without the application of the involuntary resettlement and without consultation so they acknowledged that this was something that had happened and and they should not have had that you know early works or work should not have started without these documents being in place and then they then asked the contractor to supply the safeguard documents which they never did and then the bank basically exited that part of you know basically exited using this rock but that's a different story but following the panel investigation the panel uh, identified that there was confusion even amongst the bank about whether the involuntary resettlement policy should apply the official response said it should have but when we interviewed a range of bank staff including bank social experts some said no this was a willing seller willing buyer willing seller issue Others said the involuntary policy should have applied. The contractor maintained that this was a willing buyer, seller, willing buyer issue, and they never should have applied. They had no need to apply the resettlement policy. So this was a lack of clarity in terms of acquisition of quarries. It was missing in also in the framework and the guidance documents. So following that, the bank recognized that they needed to clarify when does an involuntary resettlement policy apply versus billing. seller willing buyer and also unra the uganda national roads authority prepared a guidance note on the acquisition of quarries recognizing that this was a guidance even in the ugandan government sort of framework if you like so yeah that's another example of impact yeah thank you for your insights and sharing those experiences uh, that how uh, you know inspection panel works and you know uh, helps to reflect on the policies of the world bank and uh, i was going through the website of uh, inspection panel and also about the 30th anniversary of uh, inspection panel and uh, i came across a very recent publication about the uh, livelihood uh, and uh, uh, yeah among, i think it's 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 a, it's a report that focuses on the protection of livelihood among project affected Uh, people and uh, this is a recent report so i'm just wondering if you please share some of the findings of this report and um, how, how did you reach there and what what are the you know policy implications of the report that you are expecting here so thank you jaffa yes the livelihood advisory is our latest advisory so the panel publishes what we call emerging lessons right and we have what we call our emerging lesson series and it's that's all available on our website Uh, so the livelihood is our newest and latest a most recent publication it's the ninth publication so what we do and this is the, the, we have to work within the um, parameters of our legal framework is we can publish uh lessons learned or advisories based on our casework but we can't actually make recommendations from that and we can't go beyond that i mean that's what we are our legal framework confines us to that but the reason we published uh, uh an advisory on livelihood is we we recognize that recently or in the last 5 years 6 years that the majority of our cases all had livelihood at the core of the complaint so in a way livelihood is a sub component of resettlement but it it also can go beyond that because livelihood is not always a result of resettlement it can also be as a result of environmental or social impacts that may not result from physical and economic uh, 
uh, economic uh, resettlement. Uh, and so, you know, three quarters of our cases in the last five years have livelihood at its heart. And in the last year, all our cases had livelihood at the heart of our request. So I think that gives you a sense from the data. And then what does this advisory uh, strive to do? So it basically, it, it, it provides data from recent panel cases concerning livelihood impact and livelihood restoration. It also sets the context of the bank policy requirements. And then it examines some of the challenges the panel has observed related to identifying impact on livelihood. And this is in terms of scale, in terms of severity, and in terms of duration, right, on affected houses, households. And then we look at what does it take to plan for livelihood improvement or restoration. So section four of the advisory analyzes the preparation of livelihood restoration plan plans and what this entails in terms of designing targeted approaches and also what does it mean to provide transitional support for people who need to find a new sustainable source of income. Then we discuss the importance of measuring the effecti effectiveness of livelihood restoration and then lastly we provide some of our insights and conclusions. So just to give you a feel of uh, a few things, I think one is, you know, the panel recognizes that, you know, when you look at livelihood and you look at a household, people, you know, there's a tendency you, you, you interview the head of household and you see the head of household as the primary livelihood earner. But there could be others in the household that also have livelihoods and those livelihoods may be key for their own survival. And if they are not interviewed or they are not identified, they are not counted in the census or in the socioeconomic survey, and then they don't actually get any kind of compensation or livelihood restoration because they become invisible. They're not, they're not even invisible. They're not identified. So this was one issue. The other issue is that, you know, that, you know, livelihood restoration that are hidden you know, where livelihood is significant to someone at an individual level who are living on the edges of poverty, right? But these people are often hidden uh, project-affected persons. They cannot be found. Who could these people be? They could, they're often women, like mobile traders, right, who stand on a road and, you know, they sell stuff. They're often missed in a census or not identified. And these are people who are living on $1 or, you know, maybe $1.50 a day. But to them, that income is very significant because that income is used to send perhaps to educate their children. So if their livelihoods get dislocated, those children do not go to school, right? So that becomes a, 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 a significant impact. The other issue we, uh, you know, that we identified in livelihood restoration is how livelihood restoration plans are, are designed. And, you know, one of the things we saw from our casework is often, you know, or, or not, I should not use the word often, but the bank in some of the cases a panel has dealt with have looked at a bigger government scheme on community development or something like that. And they say, well, that scheme becomes the, or can also be used now for the project affected persons. The issue with that is it's not targeted to the specific impact a project affected person would have. And it also means these people would have to compete with a wider population for the same, uh, you know, to, to, to get the benefit of that scheme. Whereas if you are a project affected person, the livelihood restoration has to be specifically targeted to your needs, right? Then, of course, another issue is what happens when people who are land-based, 
lose access to livelihood where they cannot get a land for land replacement. What happens to them? And we had this case in India in the land pooling scheme where, you know, farmers and agricultural workers would have to essentially be resettled or move, not resettled because land pooling, move to an urban area. So they had to learn a whole set of new skills uh, in order to basically um, establish a new type of livelihood. So these were the kind of lessons that came out of the livelihood advisory and what's there in our livelihood advice. So it will be, yeah, we're going to publish that like probably next week. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading this report. Second last question uh, before I come to the last question about inspection panels, reflections and learning. I'm a student of uh, development studies, so um, critical development studies uh, often teaches us like, you know, there is uh, there are the negative repercussions of developmental projects, uh, like we, we have displacement, we have climate issues, uh, I mean, um, livelihood issues, sometimes dispossession of, you know, um, indigenous communities, all these in, in gender injustices. So these are the critical areas uh, where scholars looks into and, and talk about like okay there is you know these are the problems that the development projects also create sometime so i i'm just wondering like uh, how um, kind of world bank um, policies uh, look into these critical issues when they fund and how uh, inspection panel also you know kind of give advisory to the world bank with regard to these issues I mean, um, of course, uh, there is uh, there is development going on, but it also impacts, uh, you know, people living there. Migration happens, kind of different kind of uh, impacts happen, you know, in in several projects. Like you have shared some of the experiences. So I mean, what are your uh, insights on it? Like how, what is actually the role and how? Uh, how World Bank looks into these critical issues. So, 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 Jaffa, I mean, the World Bank has obviously very strong standards. The safeguard policy is now replaced by the standards, right? To basically assess risks and impacts, so to do the upfront assessment and then have in place a management framework. And that sort of is based on a hierarchy compensation. Right. So there are the bank has extensive standards on that. And I think you, you would see that, that they are available on the bank website. Uh, so that's what the bank does proactively. But obviously, in the case, I mean, the bank, you know, finances thousands of projects and it's inevitable that there are projects that would, you know, inadvertent impacts or, or impacts that sort of slip through the cracks or that have not been identified or where the impact assessment and risk assessment was just not good enough or did not go far enough. And that's where the panel comes in. Like I said earlier, we are a demand-driven organization. So even if we see something wrong, we cannot do anything about it unless someone complains to us. Mm -hmm. And also the panel is not allowed to solicit complaints. So we cannot even go to a community and say, oh, look, these horrible things are happening to you. Please file, you know, you can file a complaint to us. We cannot do that. It has to come from from the community itself and civil society obviously can plays a very big role in that in bringing, you know, impacted people's um, issues to the 
to the to the panel and then once we receive a complaint of course and i think i've showed it you know explained in my work then we have a forensic way of identifying you know what went wrong we look at the harm so what was the harm how, what was the consequence of the harm but we also look at what was the root cause for that harm to occur so we don't simply look we are not an auditing unit we don't say oh you didn't do that and therefore you're wrong we are not trying to be punitive to the bank this is about understanding right it's about remedy for the people who are affected and understanding for the bank to be able to improve its performance so the root cause is what was the systemic issue that in the first place the policy never got applied the way it should have been applied what happened what were the reasons why was the project developed in a hurry uh, you know was the contracting process sort of the civil work started before the supervision uh, you know was there inadequate environmental and social supervision um you know was there a lack of on the ground analysis these what we would look at what the root causes were yeah uh, that brings me uh, to my last question and uh, i mean this year as as you also already mentioned that it's been 30th anniversary of uh, inspection panel and it's being 30th anniversary within uh, under your leadership as a chairperson so uh, first of all uh, congratulations for it and but if uh, i just ask like if you look back for these 30 years so what are the key learnings and reflections that the inspection panel is is taking on board and uh, what are the uh, things that they are looking for the future and uh, what is the future vision and way forward of dealing with you know inequalities and the concerns that raise the negative consequences uh, of development projects so so thank you jaffa indeed so first and foremost let me see i see myself as a custodian the panel was set up 50 years ago it had its inaugural panel members it's always been three panel members we serve five year terms that are non renewable so panel members are first appointed based on the experience and expertise they bring to the role it's not a role you come to gain it's not a stepping stone for your career it's a role that you contribute to if you get you know if you get career benefits out of it that's great but that should not be the point of taking up the panel role and i think that's very important so i see myself as a custodian of the inspection panel and we come we serve our term and we leave and so we have an obligation and i think we have several obligations i think we have an obligation first and foremost to the people who come to us that's why we exist if they cannot access us and if they cannot get redressed through the panel process then we should not exist so that's first and foremost we have that obligation but in order to fulfill and then of course we we hold the bank accountable and the bank enjoys privileges and immunities as a you know intergovernmental organization so we do serve and we are a really important part of that accountability the bank is a public institution it finances public money to projects so it has to be accountable for what it does so i think the inspection panel is key for that and that has to be respected the third is the independence of the panel if and you know that is really important i cannot emphasize it enough if we cannot do our work independently then we we fail to fulfill our obligations and then we don't serve the purpose of the panel the whole idea of the inspection panel was to have an independent panel that can analyze something without influence and without fear of favor 
from any party. And I think that is critical. So, so protecting that independence becomes key. The quality of our work. I mean, our work, we, our credibility is only as good as the quality of our work. If our work is erroneous, if our work is biased, if our work is of poor quality, then our credibility evaporates. So that is really important. But I would like to end by saying the most important thing is the independence of the panel. We cannot take that independence for granted. All my predecessors have really articulated and advocated and had to have to actively ensure that the panel's independence remains. And I have had to do the same. And I think that is not something we can ever take for granted. It's something we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And then I would really like to highlight again the importance of compliance. You cannot have big institutions, right, that are responsible for impact for, you know, millions and millions of people in, like, almost every country in the world and not be held accountable. And that can only happen through the kind of compliance and investigative work we do. So let me conclude by saying the panel was set up as a public good. And it had, and for me, that in the importance of the panel as a public good has to be respected, has to be protected. And equally, the panel and the panel members have to fulfill their obligations to ensure that that continues to happen. Certainly, yes. as you shared, like the panel represents this basically the voices of people from the below to such a big powerful institutions like World Bank and it has a critical role uh, in that. And um, as you said, like it's an independent, so uh, it's, it has uh, some kind of responsibility uh, to, you know, bring those issues to the board of the World Bank. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Ramani for your insights, experiences and your time. It's It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much Jaffa and thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I think we share a common uh, um, commitment uh, for for development and, 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 and you know that development de delivers the best outcomes for those who need it and you know we all have different roles to play in that. So thank you so much. <laughs>